We will be in Genesis chapter 4 this morning, and as uh, Kurt said earlier, we are trying to do something, I don't know if it's possible, but put everything in one chapter in one concise form so that you can remember these things, so that you can use these to teach other people, and it gives you a reference point to say, hey, I think I heard about the fall of, uh, of, of us as huma- humanity, and what's that look like? Where is that? Genesis chapter 3, I can get there. That's, that's cool. I can find it quickly because I know each chapter and where it's at. And so if you see, um, not only that that's the goal, you'll see behind us as well and in your booklets that there are um, pictures that we're going to use along the way to kind of show and demonstrate what those are. So if you're here this morning and um, one of our elders was in the building, this is a side tangent and I can do this because I'm meeting with him tomorrow. (laughs) And so he's going to love that I'm ripping on him now. Um, But he came in the building and he's like looking at the banner and he goes, and, 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 you know, and he, if, you, if you know Butch, you, you got to know Butch. He, he calls me and goes, Joel, come here a second. What is that? What is that? And I said, it's, it's a banner, Butch. He goes, I know it's a banner. What is that? And I'm like, it's, it says Genesis. He goes, it says what? I said, it says Genesis. And, I, and he took him a while, a minute, a hot minute to get it. More than most. Uh, just put that online. Uh, more than most. It took you uh, to get this. Uh, but that says Genesis, and I said each of these pictures represents, and then he went into the pictures, and he's kind of like scoping them all out, and you get nervous as a fellow elder. You're like, we did this right, right? Like, these are the right pictures and verses. We're good. Uh, but uh, just had to drop that in on him because I appreciate cutting on him when I can. So uh, it gets personal this week. Huh. It's a perfect roll-in. I didn't expect that, but it does. This week we go from the, the <laughs> you're welcome. It gets better. Uh, it goes from there and we get into this thing of Genesis chapter four. And here is the bottom line in case you lose me along the way or fade out along the way. Here is the bottom line, I believe, of Genesis chapter four as we roll out this morning. The sin that damned humanity leaves the garden and spreads through the family. It grows in destruction and power, but God remains gracious. If you get nothing else out of Genesis chapter 4, I hope that you see this, that the sin that damned humanity leaves the garden and starts its spread throughout the family. And it grows in its destruction and its power. But here's the beautiful part. Genesis 4 reminds us as we close, God is still, still And you'll see this later, how gracious this word is, how big this word is, but he is still gracious this morning. The sin that damned humanity, it leaves, but God remains gracious to us and offers us a way out. Because honestly, as it, and you know this, as sin grows in its destruction and power, it has little concern about who it takes out along the way. And you know this, you know this about yourself, you know this about those who've been around sin. It is, it's just very uncaring about who it destroys along the way. The way, and you're going to see that this morning as we go into Genesis chapter four. So, if you have Bibles, uh, I would suggest you go ahead and turn there. Um, you can find it on your Bible or on your phones as well. But regardless, I pray you find Genesis chapter four with us this morning. Uh, there will not be a lot of verses on the screen, unfortunately. So, we're just going to kind of roll right through the text today and kind of work our way through. So, um, Genesis chapter four. Let me give you the synopsis, and then we're going to go verse by verse. So, the synopsis is this: Adam and Eve have had kids along the way. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And you may have heard this story before, but. 
Cain has an offering to give before God, so does Abel. Turns out Cain's is not the one that God desires, and so Cain gets angry and upset, so much so that he commits murder and kills his own brother. And as a result of killing his own brother, he is then marked for life by God as a punishment for this sin, and he's got to live the rest of his days marked by God, but also saved by God. And then the, the chapter turns at the end, and it talks about the family line of Cain, and it, goes, and it gets much, much worse when we hear about a guy named Lemek, and we're going to hear about his story as well. And that's kind of where we're going to head today. We're going to kind of trace the family line, and we're going to see how sin and its destruction just continues to get worse and worse and worse as it leaves the garden. So Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So her first acknowledgement is, I, I, I believe this is of God. The only, way that he is, uh, the only way that I can have these kids is through the blessing and the provision of him himself. And so as I've gotten these, this, this, these sons or this man with the help of the Lord. And then again, it says in verse 2, And again she bore his brother Abel. Now, here's the interesting thing. She has two sons. And I almost wonder sometimes, as she, the moment she has these two sons, if she isn't thinking of the prophecy that was given, that this, there would soon come one out of your lineage who would crush the head of the serpent, right? We talked about that last week, and I almost wonder sometimes if she's not in her head thinking, this is it, firstborn. Cain. He's going to be the one that's going to change everything. He's going to be the one to kind of to, to bring around restoration in my lifetime. That's a crazy thought, but maybe she's thinking that. We don't really know. All we know for sure is that she has gotten the help. She's gotten these with the help of God. It continues into verse 3. Um, I'm sorry, let's finish verse 2. And she bore her brother Abel, and now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. So we see that Cain is the farmer, and Abel is the shepherd. And so Cain is all about the agriculture and growing the crops. Cain, or Abel, is out there with the sheep and bringing them in. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offerings, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. We see that there's, there's this, this agriculture, there's this shepherd brought in, and then we see they're both bringing an offering to God. Now, this word offering in Hebrew is the word minna, and it's this word that many believe goes back into Levit Leviticus chapter 2, and it's this celebration offering of who God is. It's, it's basically a worship kind of moment for these two men. And they're offering this offering to God, saying, we worship you, we love you, and, and, and it's brought before the same God, but there's a different reaction. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And it, this, is, this is hard. This is a tough passage because we're not really told why this happens. Um, and you may have been in church and heard a lot of sermons on, on maybe on this, this fact, but as you look through Scripture, there's really not a real definitive answer uh, to this idea of why. And, and John Walton, one of the professors I love in this whole thing of uh, look, working through Genesis, he has this, and I think this is important for us to remember when we come across passages like this. He says, A successful interpretation is not the one that fills in the gaps most persuasively. 
It is the one that, le- that lets the gaps remain gaps and articulates the cohesiveness of the text as it stands. Let me say that again. A successful interpretation is not one that fills in the gaps most persuasively. It is the one that lets the gaps remain gaps and articulates the cohesiveness of the text as it stands. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1 when I said everybody's asking the, all these questions and one of the questions was, where's the dinosaurs? I just had a conversation with somebody last night, and they were talking about Genesis. I know that happens to all of you, too. Um, but I just had this conversation last night with somebody talking about Genesis, and they started talking about creation and all stuff. And they're like, and we started talking about all the dinosaurs. Where are the dinosaurs? And I just almost laughed inside my head. I was like, you asked the same question. Where are the dinosaurs? Um, there are gaps that sometimes we don't always get the full answers to, but I think we can still get the cohesiveness of the text as it stands, and that's what I want to do here. The why this was not um, regarded as one versus the other is not fully solved, although we do get a few hints of this in Scripture as to why one was accepted and one was not. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4, we see that Abel brought his gift by faith. He's actually listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and he's, he's celebrated as one who brought an offering because he trusted God. Now, you could probably read into that that if Abel brought his in faith, the other did not bring his one in faith, and maybe that's the reason why God didn't appreciate it. But I don't know that that Hebrews 11 actually gives a clear understanding of that. It just says that one was offered in faith, and then it doesn't mention Cain at all. 1 John chapter 3 verse 12 highlights the response of God, but it doesn't give us the why God did not like it. That's 1 John. That's the only other place you'll see Cain's name in the Bible. And then the only, place, the only other place in your Bible where you see Cain's name listed is in Jude chapter 1, verse 11. And this one may give us the closest context to why this was offered and not accepted. Speaking that Cain, like Balaam, Korah, and false teachers in the church, he's brought into this list of names, and all of these names sinned by rebelling against God. It was each of these, Balaam, Korah, and all the false teachers of the church that Jude is talking about, all of these men are a flat refusal to obey God. That's what they all have in common. And so if you throw Cain into this list, you can say, okay, well, apparently there's something that Cain had a direct refusal to listen to God or do what God wanted him to do, and it was a full-on rebellion. It wasn't like a, I don't want to. It was a, I don't want to. You can't make me come get me. Okay? That's the kind of response Cain has here in this offering. It is probably the closest that we're going to see or get to when it comes to why Cain was angry. But it says here, he says, and, and so Cain was very angry and his face fell. I don't think the ESV, the NIV, all these translations of your Bible get this completely correct because the actual translation of it, he became very angry was it burned Cain exceedingly. I don't know if you've ever burned exceedingly before, but I'm going to guess that maybe you have. I'm going to guess that somewhere along the way in your life, something has caused you to not just get angry, but to hold on to it really, really tightly. And not only hold on to it really, really tightly, but it becomes like this little fire pit that you love to go around every once in a while and recall that anger moment of what somebody did to you that wronged you. And you love to go outside and you love to gather around this little pit of anger and you love to warm yourself next to it. And it feels really, really good. That's one example of fit anger. The other one of burning exceedingly is, is maybe for some of you who are maybe a little more passive-aggressive, and I'm with you, and so you get angry, but you don't say anything, and you just kind of just, hmm, how you doing? I'm good. I'm fine. Are you? Great. 
Your face doesn't say you're great, but cool. Uh, and they just kind of hold it in, and they just kind of, mm-hmm, until eventually, over time, about two weeks down the road, they explode, and you're like, what in the world? And they're like, two weeks ago, do you remember when you? And you're like, no, I don't. I have no idea what you're talking about. Please help me find some context, please. Right? It's that burning, and it's exceeding, and we hold on to it. Cain was literally exceedingly burning inside. And can I just confess to you this morning, I had this this week, and it wasn't in regards to family. It wasn't because of I was wronged. I believe maybe it was in a godly way when I saw the news coming out of persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ in a country around the world, I was ticked. I mean, driving into the office, I had to like turn radio off many times because I'm like, no, no. And I was just so mad, and I'm putting myself in this scenario and having daughters and this whole thing that's happening in Afghanistan. You're like, Ugh, I just, I had the, I've come to the point this week where I just can't engage because I get so angry, and probably in a righteous anger, but pretty much all this is is, is, is his anger is, is, is his own wants and his desires, and it's this unresolved anger. He doesn't do anything with it. He just continues to let it burn. And then we see that his face fell. That's an interesting phrase. But he says his face fell and he became scowled or almost depressed in his anger. And so I almost wonder if this was over amount of time, Cain became more and more and more and more angry. And then we get this response from God himself. He says in verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? And in some ways, we can look at that and say, God, that's just mean. I mean, if somebody's really ticked off, the first thing you don't want to do is like, why are you so mad? You good? I'm fine, right? But this is amazing. This is not that. This is the amazing thing of God that you're going to see that he's tying Genesis chapter 4 with Genesis chapter 3. And God, whenever he comes in to be gracious, he always does this. He asks the right questions. And he asks it not for the sake of him knowing something. He already knows it. He's asking for Cain to admit something. He's asking in in, in Adam and Eve, he asks them, drawing them back to the, if we go back to the tree, he's going back to his mom and dad's experience at the tree where he goes to Adam and Eve and he says, says, where are you? And he says, why are you naked? And he asks these questions of mom and dad, and he does so not to get them angry. He does so to draw out the response of the ownership of what this is. And so he does the same thing to Cain here. Why are you so angry? It's very reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. What is this you have done? Cain, why are you so angry? And why is your face fallen? Or to quote the great Bruno Mars, you got to fix your face, right? It is, it is that moment where he says there's something desperately wrong with your face because it's telling me something's wrong with your heart. And then he does something amazing here. Here's, here's what your God does. He turns to this man who wants nothing to do with him, has rebelled against him, is building up an anger, and he says this to him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. He's given him an option. Cain, what's wrong, man? Like, this can be fixed. This is okay. Will you not just come to me and stop the rebellion and we can fix this thing and you could do well? 
But here's the reality, Cain. Sin is crouching at your door and it's waiting to take your downcast face and rip it off of your face. If you're not careful, you're going to give in to something far, far worse. Which again, I love this thing where he says, it's desires contrary to you, you must rule over it. I almost go back to Genesis chapter three again, where he says, or Genesis chapter two, where he says to Adam, you must have domain over things. He's now telling Cain, you must have domain over your anger. You must rule and subdue over your anger. Genesis chapter 3.16, you can see that there. It even goes into the idea of ruling. We get in Genesis 3.16 where he says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but you shall rule, he shall rule over you. There's this ruling, there's a rebellion, but ultimately there is this thing in Cain. He says, you must fix this issue. You must come to me and, and we can work this out. A remedy is given. Do well. Stop rebelling. And it's here that we see how far sin has come. In the garden, if you remember in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4, that in the garden there was at least a response from Adam and Eve that they, 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 they at worst or best, whatever you want to say, they at worst or best started blame shifting, right? I mean, I don't think it's the best response, but at least it was kind of like she made me, he made me at the tree. Cain, we don't get either one, Sin, with Cain, we just simply get silence. There's no response from Cain whatsoever. No response, no, no remorse. It's just silent. And here's the reality that you and I both know. Sin does this to us. It can so callous our hearts that we just shut up and move ahead, and we go from hiding to living out our faith, and we are living out our sin in, in, in ways that we could never imagine. We start living out this sin, and we remain silent, not only before God, but before others. And we just don't care. It's that, it's that moment where you, you want to have reconciliation with someone, and they don't want reconciliation with you, and they just walk away from the conversation. And at one point, you're angry because they've walked away from you in the conversation, but at the other side, you're very hurt because you're like, oh, if you would just come back. I think of our kids often when we were, we were little and they'd get mad and they didn't want to talk to us and they'd go and they'd stomp off, right? And you remember this, like we did this ourselves. You may have done this this week at, at wherever you work. I don't know. We just get really mad and we just stomp off and we don't want to talk about it, right? His, his sin is becoming so much part of his heart that he runs in silence. And here's the first thing I want you to see in this passage, that as you do that, as you get more and more quiet and less and less, or, or if you get more and more quiet and more and more isolated, the more sin takes a hold of you, the more isolated you become. And in your isolation, you have no one to call you out on your convictions. And you end up doing some really stupid things in isolation. I end up doing some really dumb things in isolation because I don't want anybody else in my life. I just want to live my life and do my sin because it feels good. And he is here and he's quiet and he's silent, but his actions will soon speak for him. Verse eight. Flip over. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> Am I my brother's keeper? You see, anger had taken so much a hold of his life. He became silent. He became isolated. He want anybody in his world. And then the action came. And he actually took the life of family. 
I mean, there's something about murder in, in, in itself, but murder to a family member is even worse. And so he takes his anger and he kills his brother. And when God again comes, where does God come again? God comes in the form of a question. Isn't that really cool? He comes in the form of a question. Where is Abel, your brother? Why are you naked? <laughs> Same kind of questions, right? He says, I don't know. Not my issue. The real answer is, yes, it is his issue, and, and it is his problem. Because even in the, in the Jewish uh, background there, they, they would say, like, brother's keeper, that's a big deal. And so what we see here is sin then now moves from the garden and it extends to husband and wife betraying one another at the tree. And now we see that now brother betrays brother outside of the garden and sin continues to spread and it continues to take casualties and it cares very little about who it has taken. And as we said before, God says, what have you done? It reminds us again that he says of the tree, you know, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat in 311? But I also was reminded of the question of Jesus later on in the Gospels where he has the question that he has before he goes to the crucifixion. And the question is, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Your God doesn't change. And he's asking us to own our sin and to bring it before him. And he does so with questions along the way. We continue in verse 11. And now you, now, he says, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, Cain. And it is here in the story where the noise starts to become the loudest in the narrative. It's almost as if you're watching the movie and, the, and the, the music starts really, really low. And as you're sitting there watching and watching and watching, the, the music's building and building and building and building. And this is like that tense moment of the movie, especially in a kind of war documentary, a war movie. It's that moment in the movie where the, the speakers are just so loud and the sub is like shaking your house, if you're at my house. And, and it's moving your walls because because it's become so loud and intense. And that, this is what's happened. It's become so loud and so intense. And it's here as if Moses, as the writer of this, it's almost as if he slows down and he's turned this thing up to the max and he's built the tension, and he's built the anger and Cain's anger had reached its fever pitch. He's taken a life. And it's almost as if in the midst of this large, expansive noise of the narrative, you wonder and have the question, where's Abel in all of this? Because you don't hear Abel. And all we get here finally is the faint voice of Abel. And the voice is that from coming up from the ground. This is the only time we hear of anything from Abel. And it's the fact that his blood, he says, is crying out from the ground. That's, that's an important word. Crying out, it's a vocal thing. It's, it's a noise. It's a voice. And it's almost that loud, loud fever pitch moment. And yet in the side speaker, you can hear there's still something. What is that noise? What's that noise? It's it's Abel's blood calling up from the ground. One commentator, Kenneth Matthew, says this, Among all of the bothersome noises, we never hear poor Abel, except the unnerving sound of the blood-drenched ground that cries out for satisfaction. That's amazing. That's amazing. Like, and in all of this chaos and turmoil, all we hear is blood from the ground, crying out for some kind of satisfaction of what has, just been, what has just happened. So, so the act is done. And now God comes in in verse 12. And he has this conversation. He says, when you, he says uh, 
And now you are caused from the ground when it opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Verse 12, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. He says, Cain uh, said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. It's as if Cain now finally, we think, we're not really sure, may have had a repentance moment here and says, God, it's, it's your presence that I don't want to go away from. But it almost sounds more as if he's kind of just kind of worried more about how he's going to make a living, the fact that somebody could take his life because of what happened. But I think what Moses is really trying to draw us out to here is the punishment of there was sin and there was a curse. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, right, there was a sin, there was, there was curse. Serpent, Eve, Adam, Cain, same family line, there is a sin, there is a curse put upon him. He says, you will have these things. You will be driven away from the ground. Your face, or it says he's, you will be, um, no longer be able to yield the, the strength of the crops that you had before. You should be a fugitive and you'll be a wanderer on the earth. The, the punishment has been dealt out. And just as the serpent was given a curse, Cain receives the punishment. And it's only after our sin, it's only after Cain's issues here that he finally realizes how far he's come. Because ultimately, this is the reality that we know and you see here, sin has consequences. And sadly, they become more severe the older we get. You see, the sins you do at six, right? <laughs> the consequences probably aren't that bad. Although you probably think they are, right? The grounding or the punishment you receive at six, it's like the end of the world, right? How many, uh, do I have any middle schoolers in here, right? Uh, yeah, there you are. So middle school, you remember, uh, think of the last time you were punished. Hopefully it wasn't like last night. Uh, but like, think of the last time you were punished, right? And the last time you had to do something and you were like, my, did you ever have this moment? My life is over. My entire life is, it feels that way, right? I mean, it just feels like my life is over. My parents have three heads and they're just disgusting people who would ever think to do something so harsh to me. I am the beloved child of them. Do they know who I am? Okay, maybe there's just me in middle school, but um, that, that was what happens. We, we have, we, but the consequences, they're, they're not as severe as the consequences that can happen to us as we get older. And the consequences of sin are severe the older we get. In your 30s, in your 40s, 50s, the, the things that you could do at 6, you can't get away with in 30, 40, right? It's, it's, it's called assault later in life, all right? So you can't do the same things you used to do to your brothers and sisters here now. So the consequences are severe, and he is now driven away from God. But then we start to finally see some, some grace. Then the Lord said to him, verse 15, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, that's huge, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he would build a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahulal, and Mahulal fathered Methuselah. That's fun. And Methuselah fathered Lamech. Okay? You see, the bottom line here again is, is simply this, that the sin that damned humanity leaves the garden and spreads through the first family, and now you're going to see it spread through the rest of the family. It's destruction and it's power. They grow, but God remains faithful. And here you're going to see now that it grows in its destruction and its power. Verse 19. And Lamech, the last to be named, took two wives. The name of one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Zibel, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. 
Zillah also bore Tamulacane, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tabulacane was Namana, and she and, and, and Limech said to his wives. So you get this lineage, you get these lines and these names, and then you get to verse 23, and you see this poem. Now, where else have we seen a poem? Right? Adam and Eve. He's given this, he's had woman brought before him and he writes a poem for his new wife. It's amazing, right? And now we get another poem, but this poem goes a little sideways, okay? This poem, it doesn't quite resonate the way his did. And here is his love song, or what this is often called the, the song of the sword, <laughs> right? Put that on your playlist. Um, it should have, I don't, know what, I don't know what the track is of that. Like if it's death metal, if it's, I don't know what it is. But it's, it's uh, this, this song he writes, and he says to, he writes this to his wives. Okay, so this is fun. Ada and Zello, hear my voice, you wives of Lemek. That's fun. Let's just let that sit for just a second. How we doing, ladies? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I was going to do something, but I'm not going to do that. Um, Holy Spirit's wise. Uh, you lies of Lemek, listen to what I say. <laughs> I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemek's is 77-fold. Well, at least he rhymes, right? At least he kind of gets some good words of Hebrew in there and then he rhymes it out. But, but here's what he's doing. The prideful arrogance of Cain, Lemek looks to Cain and is like, you think that's bad? That dude was soft compared to what I'll do. That guy was weak compared to what I will unleash if somebody messes with me. The badge of honor he traces back to my family's really good at what? My family's really good at killing people. If I go back to my great, 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 great grandfather, Cain, he was amazing at killing people. But here's the deal. If you think he's really good, I'm going to do even more. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. These are terms of war. These are terms of killing without remorse. And the badge of honor of ruling over his, 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 his enemies is one thing, but it's almost as if he writes this poem to this song to his wives and say, and by the way, I'm ruling over you the same way. So you better watch your step or you're done too, right? Sin gets personal, and it's the badge of honor that he would kill anyone for wronging him. It was the mockery of God for being weak in verse 24. He goes from his Cain to his wives, and then he drops this in in verse 24. Let's not miss this either. Then he starts on God himself. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemek's is 77-fold. It's as if he turns to God and he says, if you think God's punishment is something, I'm not scared of nobody, right? I ain't scared. <laughs> King Kong ain't got nothing on me, right? It's a statement of like, this is, I don't know where all these keep coming from. They're probably not helpful. But, but it's this idea, he says, God, if you think he is something, if you think this, this punishment is gonna scare me, are you kidding me? Bring it on, God. I don't care about you. Do you see how sin starts so small and continues to just build in destruction and destruction and destruction to the arrogance that it brings? God, you can't do nothing to me. Are you kidding me? I'm Lemek. I do what I want. And the arrogance, the sin has reached a fever pitch. Arrogant and violent, it is now searching out of anybody and anyone to kill. And it doesn't care at all. Who gets hurt in the way? Genesis chapter 4, the sin that damned humanity leaves the garden and spreads to the family and it grows in its destruction and power. This is the destruction and power 
Lamech is the epitome of the destruction and power that this could bring. It goes from family to other enemies to God himself. I don't want anything to do with them. But, here's the beautiful part, but God remains gracious. Verse 25 and 26. We close with these. And Adam, and, Eve, and Adam knew his wife, and she bore a son, called him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. That had to be a really hard thing to write. <laughs> I can't imagine the mother having to write those words. For Cain killed him. Obviously, she didn't write them. Moses did. But to feel that pain. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Don't miss the end of chapter 4, please. Don't miss that last line of Genesis chapter 4. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's beautiful. Even in the midst of all the sin and brokenness, destruction, still grace was there. Grace was offered. The depths of evil and sin were there, but God remains the same. God remains gracious. I'm going to ask the team to come up, and as we close, I just want to read um, one article that I read this, this week. As we think about the destruction of sin that it brings and the corruption that it, that it leaves on our lives, as we think about its power and its influence, um, we can often just become angry or distraught or wonder what in the world's happening. But here's the reality. God's still faithful, and he is still gracious. I want to read this. This was Monday. This article came out. In early July, Afghan pastors and church leaders made a difficult decision. In July, these Afghan pastors and churches and leaders decided to formally register their faith with the Afghan government. What an absurdity to register as Christians in an Islamic republic that prohibits a person from converting to Christianity. Against the advice of many, these Afghan church leaders felt compelled for the sake of future generations to legally declare their faith in Christ. Family, lineage, they stood up and said, no, it stops here. What about our children and our grandchildren, they said. Someone should make this sacrifice so that the next generations can openly call themselves followers of Jesus. If you need hope of whatever you're facing, this is happening, right? This is amazing. They said, we need the next generation so they can openly call themselves followers of Jesus. And they registered with the government, and we all prayed from outside, asking God to protect them from being rounded up and imprisoned the next morning. They were interviewed, but not arrested. Praise God, it was big. And then he says, I listened as an Afghan pastor spoke through tears about his friend, a faithful believer whose village was taken by the Taliban three days earlier. So the same, the same group of men, there was another one in that group that they said the Taliban came three days earlier and they, the dear brother's 14-year-old daughter was ripped from his arms and forced into servitude into what the Taliban would dub as marriage and her dutiful Islamic privilege and responsibility. And you think, that could have been avoided if they just wouldn't have. But at the same time, the great evil was there and somehow they decided to follow Christ in the midst of it and yet you look at sin and, and grace and how these two work and they said that, that we remind, they said in the article, we were reminded of David Platt's admonition from Secret Church and the cross and suffering. And he says these five things. When we ever experience suffering and the effects of sin, one, we must face suffering with a higher view of God. We must face suffering with a humble view of ourselves and other people. Remember that suffering and evil exist to exalt the glory of God's grace as demonstrated through the suffering of Jesus for salvation of all. 
God ordains suffering for Christians in different ways, for different purposes, and through different means. Among other reasons, he leads us into suffering to refine our faith and to show his glory and to teach us to depend on him. I wonder if some of this is happening so that we here in the West can get awakened to some things and say, wow, evil truly is still here and evil truly is still present and we need God more than we ever have. And finally, he says in suffering, finally, our good and merciful Father leads his people into turbulent waters of suffering as part of the orchestration of his plan to complete the Great Commission. You see, there will always be more pain. There will always be more pain caused by Afghanistan, Haiti, Mexico, Northeast Ohio, stress of school, whatever it is, there's always going to be more pain in your life. But here's the reality. God is still in control and God is still gracious. So as we think globally, we get that example. But let me just kind of close with an example for you personally. And these are two questions I would ask you to think about this week as we wrap up. What pain needs buried? Not in the ground, as Abel didn't even get buried, But what needs buried, what sin in your life needs buried, but not in the ground, but in Jesus? What, what, What are you holding on to so much that you just need to get left at Jesus' feet? What pain has been brought into your life that you don't know what to do with, and I don't even know how to help you even on sometimes with these? What pain needs buried, and doesn't need buried deeper in yourself to deal with it later, it needs buried in Jesus and saying, Jesus, I can't do this. I can't. I can't figure this out. This doesn't make sense but I'm going to leave it with you. That's question number one. Question number two, and I always want to ask this question, who knows and can help bring a shovel? Who knows about that pain and can bring the shovel to start putting it in Jesus with you? I know that's a weird statement, but who goes, who's beside you to walk beside you in that pain? Who knows about those hidden sins in your life that they can come alongside you and say, dude, let's kill it. Let's kill it together. Let's get rid of that in your life. It's destroying everything about you. Let's Hebrews, uh, was it nine? I could be wrong on that, don't call me. It's that idea of, of exhorting one another as it is called today. And that exhortation is this idea of we're gonna call sin out on each other so that we can become better followers of Christ. That is the goal. That is where we head this morning. And as we think about the pain in our life and all these sins that are going on, I wanna remind us that we still have a God who's in control. And so we're gonna sing about that in a second. And then we're going to take communion together this morning as a way to remind ourselves that Christ ultimately took our pain upon himself. All the evil that was caused by Cain, all the evil that was brought up in Genesis chapter 4 is met in Jesus this morning. And he offers us a way out. And we're going to gather around the table as we do so this morning. But as we finish, let me read from you um, out of the letter that I I wrote earlier um, to the church this week uh, in Psalm 131. I would look in that Bible, but it's the journal Bible. So for those who are wondering, what's he doing? Psalm 131. So here's what's going to happen. I want to read this, and then Rich is going to lead us in a song. And as he leads us in this song, I'm going to ask that when you're ready to come up and grab the elements from the table, take your bread, take your cup, and then head back to your seat. Um, And then once you are back at your seat, I will come back up after a little bit and I'll lead us through taking it together. But just so you know, that's going to work. We're going to play this song. You'll come up, grab the elements, go back to your seat when you're ready, and then I will lead us from there. So let me read this and then Rich will lead us from here. Psalm 131, in the midst of pain and suffering, he says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore.